0: These are the reservoirs of health, of biodiversity, and of the deep memory of Gaia, of what health is. They're still there, and, and if we can preserve those places, then there will be hope that health can emanate from the places where, where it still exists.
1: Welcome to A Regenerative Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host. Matt Powers and this is a very special episode where we get to talk to philosopher and author Charles Eisenstein now my experience with learning from Charles started with his book the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible and it is one of my favorite books It's something I've reread multiple times and when one of my students gave me a signed copy of climate charles's new book was signed to me
0: isn't that incredible
1: yeah so when a student gave me this i was ecstatic i was curious and then i opened it up and the first thing i see is a quote from brock dolman this is this is one of the teachers in the advanced permaculture student online this is you know someone from occidental arts and ecology center this is someone who has 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 taught me taught my students taught so many of my teachers and it was incredible to see his words at the opening of this book and so i instantly was like (gasps) and then as i read it I found all this crazy, amazing overlap with the work that I do and the work that he's doing. And then it kind of raised the bar. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's uncanny that some of the similarities we have between each other. But there is a certain level, a call, a clarion call that's being made in this book that is hyper-specific, that's really necessary, that everyone needs to hear. And that message is that biophilia needs to lead, not quantification, not self interest, not our survival, not fear, not scarcity, but the idea that love is what will heal the world, will solve our problems and will fix climate coming from a place of love. Will, will lead us to all the answers, all the solutions that we're looking for. This book is absolutely incredible. It's real life examples, amazing, incredible uh, stories, things that are featured You know, in my book, things that are featured in my big book. There's a lot of overlap between my work right now and in the work that Charles Eisenstein does. And it seems like there's even more overlap going forward as I address more social permacultural aspects. So I can't recommend this book enough. This book is absolutely incredible, vital, and the message is so important. We all need to lead from a place of love, a place of, you know, enthusiasm, not from a place of fear, judgment, or fighting, or like fighting climate change. We have to leave that behind. So this book, everyone should own, everyone should read, everyone should check out It's on Audible, it's on Amazon, it's all over where you would find books. So check it out. And this interview, he talks about what's in this book and a lot of other places he's done talks about this book. But we kind of go further, we dig deeper, and we push these ideas further in many ways. And I ask questions based off of this book. So we're going to talk about some things from the book and then we're going to go further. And it's really a conversation, less of a lecture. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth. So this is, this is one of my favorite interviews conversations that I've ever had because yeah, some of the things that are said in this, in this interview by Charles, I never want to forget and I want to refer to for the rest of my life. And I hope that you feel that same way. So without anything further, let's dive in. Awesome. So, so sweet. Thank you so much. You know, one of my students, I've, I've got this like huge course that I do, and one of my students gave me climate, and it was signed from you to me and i was like whoa and that day i started reading it and it was like whoa i need to like really take this on board it like really pulled me up short because it's like i'm doing all this stuff and i'm in many ways i'm speaking to that audience the skeptical audience and i'm reacting and Mm -hmm. i'm speaking in quantification and I'm realizing now how how weak that is, and how like there's a limitation to that <laughs> a big one, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love it if you could you know talk to us how talk to us about how the new book "Climate" is a new approach to this whole discussion where it kind of switches from fighting climate change to embracing something completely new.
0: Yeah. I mean I'll start by saying that that a lot of the stuff in the book isn't really new. Um it's you know giving I mean some of it is just giving emphasis to trends that are already emerging in the climate movement uh toward regeneration and conservation uh understanding more and more how important soil and forests are. So that's 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 kind of the least edgy part of it. But the more edgy part then is to, is, as you were saying, the dangers of quantification, uh, which when we guide our decisions by the numbers, then we tend to leave out anything that doesn't fit easily into our numerical uh, models, into our quantitative models for the world. And in the end, often it turns out that those neglected things are more important than we realized. So, for example, Suppose that you well I'll say one more thing and I'll give an example um the the you mentioned the the uh, mentality of fighting climate change to fight climate change to fight anything you have to have an enemy so the the number uh, so the, the so in the climate movement, the enemy takes on many forms one is the climate deniers, one is the fossil fuel companies those could be enemies but then more abstractly, the enemy is levels of greenhouse gases. So, it's, it's a reductionistic paradigm. War fighting is fundamentally reductionistic, and it's a comfortable place for us to be in this culture. Find the culprit, find the enemy, and now I know what to do. Whereas in a holistic system, you don't necessarily know what to do. There's not a comfortable Target for all of your to, to direct all of your efforts. So I think that the danger of what is left out that inevitably happens when we're in a reductionistic data driven mindset. Um, that's coming back to bite us. And and it means that that no matter how we extend our measurements to encompass the things we've left out, there's still going to be something else left out. And what gets left out? Often, it's a reflection of our ignorance and our biases and our self-interest, maybe uh, things that are inconvenient for you to know, you don't try that hard to find them out. So, the example I was going to give that just came up in a conversation with Brock Dolman uh, about salmon, and I was Playing devil's advocate. I'm like, okay, you know, we all love salmon and everything, but in the urgent climate crisis, we've got to focus on the things that have a measurable impact on carbon and what good do salmon do? So, you know, I was inviting him to tell me what good salmon do. And, you know, actually, surprise, surprise, in a healthy ecosystem, the salmon are coming upstream in enormous numbers from the sea. Carrying nutrition from the ocean, carrying nitrogen, carrying phosphorus, and then they spawn. The bears eat them. The eagles eat them, and the bears go off and poop in the woods. The eagles fly away and poop somewhere, and deposit all of this nutrition uh, in the soil, and and it, it nourishes the trees. And then the trees, uh, and he said, like in some places, something like 50 percent of the nitrogen in the trees is of marine origin. They have like isotopic analysis to find that out, you know. So yeah, so the trees are, are healthy and resistant to fires and sequestering lots of carbon because of the salmon. So what are you gonna do with that information? Are you gonna say, well, we must extend our quantitative models to incorporate the role of the salmon, and then we will be able to put a value on them and hold them valuable in our policy making. And so what I'm saying in the book is is that we can't rely on that to tell us what's valuable. Because what about the spotted owl? You know, what about, I mean, any, like, are you going to try to put a carbon number on all these things? Well, it's unnecessary to do that. Um, there's a loud machine out there. There it goes. Yeah, it's unnecessary to do that when we have a holistic living system approach that says that all of these beings are here for a reason. They all, are part of a a complex, holistic, alive system. So, the salmon are an organ of a living being, the bears are an organ, the eagles are an organ, the soil is an organ. And of course, if we destroy one of these organs, whether or not we can encompass that damage in a carbon reductionistic model, of course, the entire being of Earth is going to suffer. And one symptom of that suffering will be climate derangement. Will it necessarily be warming? I don't know. It might be. And I think that greenhouse gases put more stress on a system that is getting weakened and weakened and weakened. But it might not be warming. And does that mean that we're off the hook if there's no global warming? Not necessarily. Not if there's floods and droughts and derangement and extremes and unpredictability. So, so uh, long story short, um, ironically, I think that to really heal the climate, we have to shift the narrative away from a climate-centric narrative and start talking about the living Earth and its living organs and the living beings and the places and the people, too. We're an organ, too. And it's impossible for the planet to be healthy. If society is not healthy. And I could go on and on. Um, yeah, society, you know, if if we are not coherent as a culture, as a species in our purpose here on earth, if we're fighting with each other, if we're exploiting each other, then the same exploitation as it is visited on the most vulnerable people. Is gonna be visited on the most vulnerable places. It's inevitable, which means that that I wanna expand the healing narrative to include all of the beautiful things that people are doing. And just like the salmon, maybe prison reformers, I mean, I would go beyond reform, I'm more in the camp of prison abolitionists, but maybe, you know, like what's their carbon contribution? <laughs> and like I just don't think that it's the for me, at least, and I think for a lot of people, it's not the most useful guiding light in our um, service to the world.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of the argumentation we see and deep, deep anger and dissatisfaction is rooted in that. It's the fact that it doesn't address the heart. It doesn't address real meaning and purpose. And so they're like, we're going to argue about numbers? Well, now I'm pissed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, when you talked about how there's usually a singular moment for many of us who have got caught up in this whole fight ideology, um, there's a particular moment in our lives where there's something that we have a particular memory or an association with that is the reason that we we feel love for and we, we tend to forget it we tend to get buried in this attempt to to find the 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 right combination of things to reach your audience and have them have an impact and so you go and look at all the different options and you're like oh well i could say fight and i could say you know the dangers and And then you know, and 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 people, it's so easy if you're if you're doing it for a long period of time to just hit those buttons. And once you hit those buttons, there's an addictiveness to them. And and it stung when when I read that in your book, because I'd realized I'd put that in one of my books. And I'd used the fight language in when a couple places, and I was like, ah. And and it's like I had to actually spend time thinking about what memories that I had. And it's actually caused me to really re- reframe where I, what I'm gonna be doing with my kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was deep, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> mm, thank you.
1: Um, yeah. you. You have how many boys? Do you have four boys?
0: Four, yeah. Four. I
1: grew up in a family of four boys. I have two boys. Uh and uh, that whole thing about the the metaphor of the cutting, you know, learning by using knives and cutting yourself, being like, oh, wow, dad. Um, When you're talking about lifestyle, you can show them, they can feel it, they can taste it, but when we're talking these abstractions, we're like, you know, we got to make that number. You got to feel guilty about it, you got to change the way you, it's it's so... Like in a parenting way, you can see immediately how that's never going to work.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, it comes down to how do we force people to do what we want them to do. Right. And and to force somebody, you can leverage their fear or you can leverage their greed. Both of those are a kind of manipulation. And I think that's one reason why, you know, faced with the failure of our environmental campaigning and I mean, you could argue it both ways. There's some good things that have happened. But uh, I mean, come on. Like, even if you're you're totally in the carbon narrative, um, since Rio, greenhouse gas emissions have gone up like at least 50%. I think it might be 60 or 70%. I don't remember exactly. They've gone up a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And rainforest destruction has continued apace. Borneo and Sumatra are almost totally decimated by now. Amazon has shrunk 20%, et cetera, et cetera. we are not winning this war. If you frame it as a war, we are not winning this war. So how should we, what should we do in the face of this failure? I know. Let's do even more of what we've been doing. Great idea. Let's galvanize the troops. Let's scare them about how bad the enemy is. Let's arouse frothing hatred of those bastards that are in control and, and ramp up the war effort and scare the public even more by presenting them with even more data and more computer models and projections and guilt them into being with with accusations of being anti-science if they don't go along with it and so on and so forth. Let's rally the troops. Like That whole approach I don't think is working. I don't think it touches what actually motivates care for the beings around us. Including the entire Earth, and boy, oh boy, this there's like these really loud machines driving up and down. Don't you don't hear it, but no. it's on my mind, and I want to make a point with those. Uh, and it's related to this war point. Okay, so these machines out here are leaf blowers. Okay, I'm at my parents' condo. It's a 55 and older uh, community, and. Um, There they are driving around, really loud machines to take away all the leaves so that the leaves don't uh, mar the uh, beautiful green expanses of uh, weed-free grass. So, tremendous effort, tremendous use of fossil fuels, uh, air pollution, noise pollution. And for what? Actually, no one ever even steps on this grass. Like there are no kids playing on this grass. There are no volleyball games. There are no putt-putt golf courses. Like there's nothing happening on that grass. So it's actually a tremendous amount of effort for no benefit whatsoever to genuine human well-being. It's all part of maintaining a a identity, um, maintaining an image and a story. So I was, um, you know, I visit. Uh, climate skeptic slash denial websites from time to time. And one of their main narratives is these crazy enviros and greenies, they want us to forego a good life. They want to withhold development from the rest of the world. They want us to sacrifice our heat in the winter and our air conditioning in the summer. They want to make us not drive as much, et cetera, et cetera. Like they are trying to they are attacking our way of life and our well-being. So, that whole uh, debate about can we afford to live at the quality of life that we have now, can the environment afford to do that, becomes irrelevant when you question, is this actually serving human well-being? There's a phrase that came to my mind as I read that, comfort enters the home as a guest and then takes over as the master. Right? So like the air conditioning, man, that feels good. What a relief, you know, coming in and then eventually you get addicted to it. And you become unable to go out outdoors. And you're trapped in the house. And you become soft. You become unable to be warm or cold in extremes. You you become more and more dependent on technology for not only your your physical health but even for your psychological health, like needing constant fixes of technological stimulation to keep your brain happy, um, or even pharmaceutical medications to maintain artificially high levels of whatever. Um, I don't even know if those medicines do what they're supposed to do, but anyway, that's the premise. right? So, like, is that the direction we want to go as a society and as individuals? Those are the kind of questions we have to ask. And then, when, so then you can come, like, and then, you know, you see the effect of people. And I'm sure you have this as a permaculture teacher, you know, people, they call it um, uh, garden therapy, you know, nature therapy. Like, people get their hands in the soil, they smell those humic smells that reawaken something in the brain, like a prime, primal well being. Uh, they, their addictions fall away. They become more joyous. They become more trusting. Like all these benefits come. You've seen that. And in that, from that place, from seeing that, you can go to people who are really stuck in the status quo, who are afraid to let go of their air conditioning and their air travel and all these things. And you can say, I want your life to be better it's not you're going to have to sacrifice you're going to have to make do with less and have a worse life but i want your life to be better and i know that if your life is truly better then the life of all beings will be better and um and 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 my brother you have settled for a counterfeit of real well-being yeah you understand
1: yeah and in fact people like can tell when they meet my family and my kids are like, what is going on here? What do you do, sir? And I'm like, well, it's going to be a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. When I, I think a lot of homeschool families feel that. And I think the ones that homestead feel it even more.
0: Um, yeah. Although then there's like the loneliness that sometimes happens with homesteading
1: and homeschooling, and homeschooling especially for yeah. kids. Um, they can feel isolated even. So what happened with my oldest is his best friends, he's 12, but his best friends growing up are now graduating high school um, in Sweden. And so they're like, we're oh, they always were ahead
0: <laughs> academically.
1: But my son, you know, he's been reading since he was like 10 at a high school reading level. And so it is very hard. And I think that... Part of that separation of self, it's like you have to be in your age group, you have to go with your age group, is what, you know, holds us back. Um,
0: yeah.
1: So speaking of the, the the different stories that we carry with us and the new stories that we're, we're creating and co-creating, um, what stories... I'm skipping around.
0: <laughs> yeah, whatever. That's fine. Um,
1: what, what stories do you feel like are the stories to reach those adults that are the deniers? That because obviously they we're all using different stories to talk about. One, some of them are fear based. Some of them are scarcity based. Um, but but what are what what do you think are the stories? Because I that's what I do. I basically. You know, I create stories and I create these, these manuals that I imagine people, you know, imagining themselves in it and creating new stories in their minds. Yeah. But the most potent stories are the ones that are going to turn all those people that are supposedly our enemies, who are actually our family members, mm-hmm. you know, into our biggest allies. And I, and I just, you know, I'm just always thinking, what are those stories?
0: I think the, that to be, to be effective, a story has to meet somebody where they, not. I wouldn't say quite where they are, but to meet them where they are ready to go. So, a lot of people are ready to go to a place of uh, exercising more love and care for the people and the places around them. You don't want to have to condition that on um, politically charged uh, uh, beliefs. Like people can be, um, you know, Republican-identified Trump supporters, and still be in a place where they really want to start taking care of people around them, or really starting, you know, want to take care of their local stream, the local river. In my book, I, I talk about this some. Um, Uh, this guy in central Pennsylvania, you know, who uh, organized the local rod and gun club uh, for environmental stewardship. Like every single one of those guys probably voted for Donald Trump, you know, and they probably do not profess belief in climate change. I don't really care what beliefs people profess as long as they're taking care of their forest and taking care of their stream, you know taking care of their their soil. So, that's another reason to sometimes bypass the uh, established political debate, where here's this side, here's that side, and if we could only get people onto our own side, things would be a lot better. And I'm not saying that um, global-level policies and agreements are not necessary. But I know that if everybody really took action to, to care for their local place and then respected other people's care for their local place, then we wouldn't have fossil fuel exploration anymore. Because every single fossil fuel project destroys a place. Whether it's the forests in Alberta or the the marine environments where the offshore oil drilling is happening or like the, I mean, now they're, they're, you know, doing, they're exploring new oil fields and using like these sonic blasts, you know, that, that deafen the whales, you know? So even if you don't believe in climate change, but you care about the whales or you care about the, the crabs in the Chesapeake Bay, with mm-hmm. uh, the shellfish, where you care, all you have to do is care about something, and be willing to take the risk that love invites to protect what you care for. That's that would be. I don't know if that's enough, but that would be a huge step, and it's a step that's available to people when we speak to them um, about uh, speak to them about what they are ready to step into care about.
1: Yeah, and there are definitely more of those stories showing up. I mean, I saw that um, that beach that took three years to clean up in India or Mumbai. I can't remember exactly um, where, where, which the exact location. Um, but it's, it's these stories of, of individuals. And I feel like it's like the individual cells, you know, tr- trying to trigger the multiple cells to create that organ of that bioregion, you know, to activate and start producing, you know, the, the correct proteins to you know, mm-hmm. heal better. So, so many people know that um, my wife's dealt with cancer um, and right now um, we've just uh, dealt with more cancer and it's, it's mindset that I've discovered is the key to everything. No matter what treatment you choose, it's mindset, and I feel like that's what climate, the book, has invited us to do is to change the way we think about our relationships with everything, and because it's not because it's communication about these ideas, it changes our relationship because our relationships are always strong communication. So it's yeah, it's just.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book is the intention is to change the way that people see and the way that they think, because the solutions, you know, like, yeah, I talk about like some kind of examples of solutions, but I'm not saying okay, here's the solution, here's what we need to do every every place. It's rather that when we see Earth as alive and sacred and conscious and something that that and and, and our love is awakened then we 're going to figure out the right thing to do in every place and and globally too, like I think that i mean it's, I think it's quite obvious that when we see Earth as alive, then the top priority absolute top priority becomes i would say uh, conservation of the Amazon and the Congo and any then any pristine ecosystem like these these are the reservoirs of Health of biodiversity and of the deep memory of Gaia of what health is—they're still there—and and if we can preserve those places, then there will be hope that health can emanate from the places where where it still exists. So it does. I'm not saying okay, you know, forget about global things. Let's just focus on the local. Um, I think that this way of thinking and way of seeing naturally leads to policies that protect everything that and that will benefit the climate like it, it's not like an alternative to climate activism because even from a carbon perspective and i think we have to expand way beyond that i think water is more important than carbon as far as planetary health goes Um, Not that carbon is not important, but even just from a carbon perspective, every year we're discovering that the rainforests are more important than we thought they were. So, on that ground alone, we should be conserving rainforests. And then second priority then is to regenerate everything that's been damaged, to actively serve healing. Most important, soil, wetlands, forests, any any ecosystem, seagrass, meadows, whales, I mean, actually, I can't say which is most important, but regeneration then is, is just a no-brainer. It's like if you're sick and your organs are damaged, like you want to nourish your organs. You know, you have or or you're... then the third priority uh, for me is is to lift the regime of toxic pollution, pesticides, herbicides, uh, chemicals, etc that that like that that poison the planet on a tissue level so yeah that's it's not just a philosophy guess, i guess is what i'm saying it translates into policy globally and locally
1: absolutely you know when when we're talking about the reservoirs of of gaia's memory being in those 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 massive ancient uh, ecosystems um genetically with the macro, you know, the larger animals and everything. um, That's, I feel like that's 100% true, but there's this small thing that I have, that, that has cropped up and consistently keeps cropping up where the smaller things, the fungi, the seeds, bacteria, the things that we feel like have gone extinct or we haven't seen in 200 years, they have this crazy ability to just show up. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that everything is everywhere, which is a powerful, powerful concept. Um, it sounds almost spiritual, um, but when it comes to soil, it, the, the nutrients are always there, just locked up. And it's when these other living elements are there that they create the possibility. And so it's like Gaia is like seated. 15 to 16 miles deep with bacteria and fungi. The whole thing is alive. It's still vibrantly alive. And it's this surface level that we're really burning off and toxifying and everything. And it's affecting all the other creatures like us that are big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I just wanted to add that. So, speaking of the animals and speaking of other living things, even the micro, um, seeing them as kin and then not even using the word it is this concept that Robin Wall Kimmerer has proposed. And for me, I've had to, again, you know, like grapple with this concept and be like, oh man, when, like, can we really fully adopt this idea that everything around us is kin? And that no longer will I use the word "it" for something I don't know the gender of. Yeah, but but what do you think about this, Ken? Do you think that we can get to this point where we see everything around us as part of ourselves, as that true interbeing, and 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 adopting it as a language shift? Do you think that's necessary?
0: Well, I, I appreciate the impulse. Like I, I to to uh, replace a dehumanizing or desacralizing word with something that has connotations of beingness and and kinship. Um, although if you go back far enough, it did not have the connotations that it does today. If you were in a, in a world where everything is alive and sacred, then it is the same as he and she. So another option would be to rehabilitate it and they. And that would be part of Seeing the world in a different way. I mean, if we see the world in a different way, then then when we call something it, that could be a term of reverence. Like it just wouldn't have the connotations that it does right now. And maybe, you know, I think like uh, neologiums like like yeah um, are like key and kin, you know, that Robin Walcomer is talking about, they they can be useful in um, breaking habits of thought. That, like, they're they're a kind of an interruption because they're an unfamiliar word. Um, so they might be part of that change of of perception. Um, but I don't think they're a magic bullet. You know, we've seen like one politically correct term after another come up and then become a term of disparagement because the underlying mindset hasn't shifted. Like I remember when I was a kid, retarded was the politically correct word for mentally disabled people and I'm probably committing a crime now by a thought crime by saying mentally disabled, mentally differently abled or mentally challenged or mentally I don't know what the politically correct term is, but the thing is, so retarded was was like a very sensitive, correct way to refer to people, you know. But then pretty soon on the playground, we're calling each other, hey, you retard, you know, and it becomes like um then a new word has to come to once again, give attention to the, to the unconscious biases that, that are still there. So, I became a little bit uh, skeptical in the end of the idea that if we just only change the way that we talk about something, then things are going to change. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I wouldn't write it off either, but it's um, Language and thought are closely connected, but I think ultimately it shouldn't mean what it means. If we see everything, even, you know, like this sweatshirt as a being, then we can ask, what is my right relationship to this being? Whether we call it it or he or she. And my right relationship to my shirt is different than my right relationship to a turtle or uh, a plant or a brick. Like I would do things to a brick that I wouldn't do to uh, a turtle. But that doesn't mean that I just don't care about the bricks and that bricks are not important and turtles are. It's, it's, it's To see being this in all things is the beginning of an inquiry as to what is mine to do in relation to this being. But it's not to divide the cat the world into two categories, one of which is beings and one of which is non-beings. That's the problem that we have today.
1: So I always, my students always give me this all this feedback, and, and the most common feedback is that they feel like they don't have funds and they don't have time. Um, and, and, it's, it, it, and in my mind, I just I put all those excuses into this wiggle room. It's like people just need to feel like there's wiggle room and then they can start wiggling and growing. And what do you think it's going to take to get people to, to find in themselves that they do have wiggle room? Because, I mean, we're just like, quickly this, quickly that, I must go. And we're just racing around, and and we're getting told by statistics. And it's so self-reinforcing. They're like, the c- cities where they're running around, walking the fastest on sidewalks for every 10 meters, the fastest walking cities are the ones with the most patents and the most success, and, and it's like... I'm like writing down to myself, I need to slow down, slow down. And then I get these messages and I'm like, but that's not true. <laughs> it's like, how do we like break through and allow them to to find that pathway to find that wiggle room? Do you think?
0: Well, there's a lot uh, here. I'll start by by like just addressing like, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. There's a good reason for that. Which is that the things that are in service of earth healing do not create marketable goods and services. Therefore, earth healing needs to be funded by people who are not looking for a return on investment. Mm-hmm. At least, not a market return. People need so so permaculture farmers, uh, regenerative farmers. They need to be gifted land so that they can do what the land needs and not what the market needs. If I were a billionaire and wanted to use my money for good, that would be like one of the top things I would do. Um, Put land in the hands of the best, youngest, brightest farmers out there so that they don't have to meet the mortgage payment. They're free to do what serves land and people. Yeah, because your failure to make a living at, I'm not saying you, Matt, but just in general, like your failure to make a living in permaculture or whatever other healing or regenerative practice you're doing is not necessarily a reflection of your personal failings or your scarcity programming or anything like that. It could be a reflection simply that what you're doing is not aligned with the money system. And this is not universal. Some people do beautiful things in the world and make plenty of money doing it. But generally speaking, a lot of the things that need to happen, there's not a lot of money in that. There's a lot of money in oil drilling, not a lot of money in watershed restoration. And I know guys who go out there and they do it guerrilla style. <laughs> they like go into like state parks, state forests, you know, and they're like putting check dams on the streams and things like that. Like they're they're out there doing it. No one's paying them to do that. Um, so yeah, that's that's just the lay of the land. So if you're having financial trouble, don't take it personally. And secondly, what that means is be open to receiving gifts without the guilt of I should be making it on my own. Making it on your own means finding something to market. Maybe you shouldn't be making it on your own. Maybe your best business model is permanently to live off of The generosity of of others. Maybe that's the rule of nature too. Maybe that's how nature works too. Each being producing in profusion more than it needs, and it ends up, you know, soil bacteria. They don't need to produce all that. All they don't need to fix all that nitrogen. The the Mycelium that feed them sugars. Like they don't need to feed them all those sugars, you know? Everybody, like nature is profuse, nature is abundant. So if you want to step into ecology, then you have to be open to an abundance of of gifts and not feel ashamed and not cut off the flow and not think that you have to make it on your own. So that could be, yeah, I mean, maybe that is a kind of scarcity programming that we need to clear. Um, to be in full service. It's really a matter of what do you serve. And whatever it takes to serve that, I accept it. Even if it uh, doesn't fit into my parents' or my grandparents' idea of what a, a successful man looks like. I'm not sure if I answered the other part of your question, but... (laughs)
1: <laughs> man, you hit home hard. That was so awesome. Thank you for saying that. It is, it is hard. Oh, man. It is hard to um, be in the niche of the niche. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what permaculture essentially is. Maybe the niche of the niche of the niche. Um, so, yeah, it is very hard. Um, that's why I give away you know, my, uh, my main books away for free. Um, and anyone who, you know, asks, I, I let them into my courses, um, because I feel like it's a human right to know how to live beneficially on the earth. I mean, isn't our role is to live beneficially. So to withhold that information is, I can't, I can't like go to bed at night thinking right. <laughs> that might've happened.
0: Right. Whew. And that's why I do my stuff on, on gift as well. Same, same idea. I don't want to withhold it from somebody and say, well, I know you really want this, but I'm only going to give it to you if you give me X dollars, you know, like that's not the kind of uh, energy that I want to put out into the world. Like that's what, not what I want, That's not the future that I want to help establish. And, uh, but the other part of what I do is, is, is basically I say, I trust you to, to give whatever feels good and right to you. And if that's zero, please trust that. And that's hard for people. Like a lot of people, they, they don't they don't want to give zero, even if honestly, that's what they should be giving. But then that field of trust also, like some people, might might give a lot. And they they fund, they subsidize the ones who can't give very much. And we're then we're all in it together, each person giving of what they have, of what they've been given. And partly that depends on an understanding that everything that we've been given, was indeed given to us, even if we worked hard to earn it. Because where do you get the ability to work hard? Did you earn that? Did you earn the sun? Did you earn water or your mother, right? So like that state of gratitude helps to foster the understanding that we're all in it together and that we're all conduits of gift. So, yeah, I guess I, I would just say that, that when you offer things by gift, create uh, avenues and opportunities that are welcoming for people to give more than the, the market value would be.
1: Yeah, that's an awesome way to think about it. And I've actually looked at your course, um, the the uh, Sacred Economics course, um, and I've I've got I'm going through the 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 entrance for it. I was just like, wow, this is an education, because <laughs> uh-huh. I've like tried to do that, but maybe my epigenetic marketing for my dad has got me. <laughs> right. But like, you know, I have like payment plans and I like say, you know, I say always try to say you know, message me if you if if you if you need if you feel drawn to this program and you can't get in, message me. You know, that kind of thing. Right. But man, yours is so reflective. And I think that's the thing. I think that is the wiggle room. Is that reflection is the moment we begin to reflect, time changes. We could be there for a minute daydreaming, and meanwhile, we had this huge thought. Or we could be, you know, there for hours and it felt like just seconds. Mm-hmm. And it's that reflection that opening that door, inviting them and asking them questions, and showing them that they what they think matters on that deep, deep level. Hmm. Yeah, I'm so grateful for the education that just your sign-up process. To your course gave me about the gift economy because you know i'm studying it i'm trying to live it but it feels a little bit like um i'm an onion not the concepts of an onion <laughs> mm-hmm. and i have to just un- 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 take these sections off of myself and as a parent it's just, it's so the same thing like i said i grew up with three brothers yeah my mom was a politician and my dad was Marketing for Post, the fruit cereal, you uh-huh. know, thing, and then craft, and so they were like, you know, and I, yeah, I, I I had to like deprogram so much of, of who I well, you went to you went to Yale, right? Yeah. What, 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 what were you like on a completely different track and just did have well, an epiphany? Because I mean, for me. I became a musician and I was like, I just was certain of who I was and everything. And then the cancer came in. My wife asked me to change everything. And I did that and I had to go through like a lot of self discovery. And the only thing that like soothed that, that self part of myself that like I I left behind Um, what was, was the permaculture, was the gardening, was serving other people and other living things and and children's teaching everything. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think all of us are on a journey from separation back to reunion. And you know, the, the nudges that propel us on that journey, it's different for every person. It could be, you know, your wife gets cancer. It could be your own health crisis. It could be, you know, your child gets anorexic or addicted, you know, or I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen in life that are the symptoms of the breakdown of our story that told us how to, how to live life and how to be human. In our parents' generation, the story was a lot more robust. It wasn't in the state of disintegration that it is now. And like I had, um, I I was fortunate in a way that, that, you know, even though my parents were quite successful in the old paradigm, professor, lawyer, you know, um, they still sowed some seeds of radicalism in me. Um, and at least in some ways affirmed my intuitive knowledge that the world is not supposed to be this way. And, and, you know, that was enough, like from where they were, that was already a lot. So, you know, we're standing on their shoulders and our children are going to look at us and be like, Oh man, you know, dad was hopelessly backward and and, um, mesmerized by the old story. And I can't believe like he even did this and even did that and never realized this. And like, you know, they don't, they don't know how audacious it was you know like for my mom she was a female attorney that was unheard of when she like that was already hugely audacious today it's like yeah big deal right like half the women half the people in law school are women you know like who cares but but then um no one in town would hire her she had to go into private practice not a single law firm And she graduated from yale law school wow like the top law school in the country. And she was like, I think she was, I mean, she was like, and not only that, she was like a a really good student, you know, yet no one would hire her. So like for that generation, like what was enormous progress to them and audacious thinking out of the box thinking to us seems second nature. So yeah. Each, each generation standing on the shoulders of the last.
1: I feel that so strongly. My mom was the person who was determined and just shocked when she was a student teacher um, to learn that there's no, there was no, in the seventies, there was nothing that they taught. There was no curriculum for special ed in middle school in New York state. And she was like, this is unacceptable. And she created it and they adopted it into law. And then when she was at Columbia, they taught it back to her and they gave her this confidence. And when she became a politician, all the men like rallied against the women and it didn't matter the parties. And so mm-hmm. they just started this women's caucus and it didn't matter what their prior belief was, but it was this solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. And people just don't know like the that was the 92, that was the ninety two, ninety-three, you know, and they were ending the men using prostitutes in the Capitol in Connecticut. You know what I mean? It's like, what? And I, I was, you know, I was 12. But that's literally the world and how close that old story is, it feels like. And even like, like the old, there's layers to the old story, I feel like. Like my mom, like she, I got to see her rewild uh, a, a, Part of Todd's Point in in Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, when I was really, really little, I got to see her turn it from this stinky. I was a camp camper at the time, and it was the area that we didn't like to go because it stank, it was anaerobic. And my mom, with conviction and words, made it all come back to life in my mind. That's what all I saw. It's like her do a speech in front of the stinky thing, and then we show up like later, and it there's birds in it. There's like an egret, this big white egret and everything. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just feel like I've seen these things start and uh, yeah, we've got to get this story to spread. (laughs) And I feel like so much like you just said, like we grew up in these old stories and for me, I've been reacting almost my whole life to this story. And so it's like, well, my dad was a business person. I'm never gonna be a business person. And my mom was a politician, I'll never be in politics. And I'll be a musician. And, and it was always opposite. And in my, my music, I, I really recently realized I've always put a stopgap on myself. Mm-hmm. And it's because I'm in resistance mode. I'm not in growth. I'm yeah. not in, and fully in love with the moment yeah. of what I'm doing. And it was really, really painful to realize that I had been the one. <laughs> it had nothing to do with their story. It was really me drinking it and taking it in. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah, you know, at some point, like I was mentioned before, like, what do we serve? And at some point, you realize, oh, am I serving... My need to, excuse me, am I, am I serving my need to individuate by rebelling against my parents and, and, you know, defining myself in contrast to them? Or would I like to serve healing on this planet? And what do I have to let go of to step more fully into service to this planet? I might have to let go of that. I might have to be a businessman or a politician um, if that's what's in service. And maybe it won't be, but I but I have to at least make that decision based on what does my care call me to through the organ of the heart into service. And what is some um maybe a need of my ego that uh is no longer a need anymore as the ego ripens and I no longer need to have that oppositional stance and and so for me it's you know it's it is a a relatively gentle process overall uh, although there could be harsh realizations sometimes but the process really is is what is the next thing that i'm ready to shed in stepping into more coherent alignment what's ready to drop not like this, this like relentless, ruthless pruning of myself in the heroic mode.
1: <laughs> I feel like my my work, you know, I present these these giant tomes of information. I'm like, and here, this is the answer, and it's like people get overwhelmed, and I'm like, what do you mean? It's all there. I've I've made it extra clear in ninth grade reading language, and I'm like, ah, and I'm all nervous, and it's it's because I just gave them all this stuff for them to stress over instead of inviting them into this progression, this like romance, you know? And it's like, oh, (laughs) I've really like, it's been, it's been like a deep realization and it's not just me. I mean, I have tried to embody those things implicitly, but because I haven't explicitly uh, done it, it doesn't have that, that, that power that 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 we're talking about, you know. Perhaps you can share that metaphor. Um, that the that, that woman that you shared the metaphor about taking care of a child that is being neglected in the law.
0: Um, I mean, I think. Are you talking about the? Yeah, for going...
1: Someone to take care of a child that they ne- they're neglecting. You'll never right. take care.
0: Yeah, that's a, a, a metaphor I use in the book to uh, illustrate the um, deficiency of utilitarian arguments for taking care of the world, for taking care, taking care of the environment. Yeah. Um,
1: and it's made me just think about our the way we handle love and the way we Force arguments on people, and we use force and instead of like cultivating that tender place that has love in it. Right. People don't have that accessible right now.
0: Yeah. There's a couple of things going on in my mind at once. Um, one, just like when you're talking about the tome that you make, uh, you know, here, here's all the information. I mean, sometimes there comes a time when somebody is hungry for that like it's not useless to make a tome uh, someone might might if they're in the right place that that will be received and and put to good use but it's about trusting trusting another person to make the next step that they're ready for but also seeing with experience and uh, and love you can see what someone's next step might be even better than they can see it. And you can see their capability of it and the emergence of their love before they can see it themselves. That's what a really good coach will do. And I had the benefit of such a coach or a good teacher. Um, they'll, they'll see you as capable of something that you don't even think you're capable of and put you in conditions where that capability comes forth. And that is really... Um, Uh, a master level of teaching. And for it to work, you have to actually see that in somebody. You can't um, pretend to see a capability that they do not have. You have to actually see what they are ready to, to, to do, what they are ready to be, and hold that. And when you can see that, which probably means that you have to be able to see it in yourself as well, But when you can see that and hold that, then you're creating an invitation for them to step into that. So the way that we see people is an invitation for them to be what we see. And so how are we seeing people? I guess to take it back to the uh, environmental conversation, like how are we seeing Monsanto executives, for example, fossil fuel executives? What, what, What judgments are in our mind about these people? And what are we inviting them into? And I just think that, you know, people are getting more and more fed up and impatient and despairing of the conditions of modern life. And therefore, in various ways, people are ready to embody something of a new story. What that is might be different for different people, but the world is falling apart, the old world, it's falling apart, it's not working anymore. And by seeing what is emerging, then we can invite people into a new world.
1: So how do you think we, we let go of quantifications in our daily lives? Because we, we, we tend to measure everything. We're tending to count and all these different things. Do, do you have any like, things that you do that you're like, oh, well, I do this thing as like an exercise or a thought or a, a story?
0: Well, I mean, I, 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 I quantify things sometimes. It's not bad. It
1: has its its place. Yeah. Yeah. I just was. I just. um, Yeah. I just was meaning like trying to break that that cult of quantification that we tend to fall into, where we're seeing numbers instead of other values. I think your book's a wonderful place to start with that. Mm Thank you yeah. so much for for answering these questions. I think you've answered every single one of them.
0: Yeah, yeah I think you've kind of organically uh, visited all the places that you had in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm.
1: So, what are you doing with your boys? As a final thought, so that I can connect this to my 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 boys, because I'm right now. I've got a 12 year old in an eight year old. And so they're at this cusp moment, you know, in their lives and they're, they're fighting a lot. They're trying to figure things out. And James just, just broke his hand. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and, and, and so I'm trying to figure out because this is completely uncharted territory you know, in my experience, obviously there's things I can read about and other people I can study and try to mimic. Um, yeah. But w- what, are you, what are you doing to try to bring this story of inner being into, you know, their homeschooling or their just race uh, experience?
0: I mean, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll point, point his attention. Um, right now I have a five-year-old um, and a 13-year-old and two grown kids. So um, mostly I'm interacting with a five-year-old, but also the thirteen-year-old, you know, and and pointing their attention, um, or asking questions that invite a holistic or interbeing way of seeing, um, like you know, what do you think that tree is thinking right now, or like stuff like that, Um, and. Like with Carrie, he's five, you know, there's this whole universe of superheroes that he's attracted to, Spider-Man, Batman, and Star Wars. and um, So, these are very damaging myths, because all of them diagnose problems as being caused by evil. Mm-hmm. And solutions then, as being the destruction of evil mm-hmm. uh, winning a fight against yeah so the solution is to win a fight uh so you know i'll, I'll poke holes in that you know or i'll ask you know why do you think uh, the joker is so mean what happened to him to to make him so mean like to just invite that way of thinking you know maybe you know maybe his parents didn't love him you know maybe he like we we will go into that kind of thing just yeah, to get him used to thinking in that way. Wow! Um,
1: so you're not even like p- trying to like control flow. You're letting things become lessons in them in themselves.
0: Well, also, I, I mean, no, we restrict his. I mean, I mean, this is stuff that's inevitably coming in. Yeah. It's not like I'm taking him to see Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, it's hard. They come home and they're like, dad, I want Minecraft. I'm like, how did you find
0: out? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> Right. Yeah. No, we don't, we, I don't, you know, we're, we're very strict with um, the kind of media that he gets exposed to. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I think that the whole idea of asking questions is, is the key because it shows that you trust and honor them to participate in
0: their growth. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. there's more. I mean, we could have a whole thing on on the parenting, but yeah.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Matt. This is great.
1: Ah. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I I'm, I'm going to be rewatching that and thinking about all that. I'm I'm working actually on this this book because um, I. I keep seeing things that need to happen in permaculture. Mm -hmm. Um, And the number one thing I see is that that quantification, skepticism, scarcity, fear thing is really just under the surface of a lot of people Mm -hmm. in permaculture. And so when I read your book, it was like, oh, my word, we're all running down the wrong path. And I realized I had been shifting into it and cause when I did just the curriculum, I mean, it's just curriculum. So there's not going to yeah. be. Any part of it,
0: part, part of it, part of the reason that we're being invited down the wrong path is because we think that it's going to make it more acceptable to, you know, the establishment that if we can really quantify it and present a, a empirical data-based case for it, then they're going to, they're gonna adopt it.
1: Yeah, and I think there's this atrophy actually, sadly to say, um, in permaculture as a movement, I think people who have been in it for like 10 years are either just repeating the same PDC mantra, let's make the backyards better, let's make the backyards better, just recycle, or they're really burned out and they're bitter. Um, And so somewhere on the spectrum, um, most people who have been in it for 10 years are, and yeah, if they're lacking enthusiasm and like, that's the thing I teach really, it's like the undercurrent of what I teach kids. Cause I was a, I was in the sixth most violent County in, in America teaching kids English. They don't want to be in that class. They, they for first book they ever read was in ninth grade. It was the hundred games. So I had to create enthusiasm and I see enthusiasm as the key to mm-hmm. all these problems I mean, people, like, like, they don't have the energy. They don't have the the feeling that they have enough. And it's like, that's what enthusiasm... And so I'm, I'm going to be working on um, a book called Unstoppable Enthusiasm. Um, and I'm going to have that be my focus. Because I feel like all these people, they're just stalemating themselves because it's an enthusiasm. They've got all the information.
0: It's- Is a book the thing to do, though? Like, I'm, I, I'm kind of... Uh, shying away from writing more books I think
1: I was gonna do a course a book an yeah. book um, and and I want to do an event that is like mm-hmm. template so it's like and then you take it and you make joy here and you take it and, you know what I mean like that's my whole thing though is it's like I want like all my um, all my students become 50 50 affiliates um, like they become just equal partners with me in my business and they take my glass um, and uh, yeah I'm just trying to figure out ways to get people that wiggle room give people that feeling that like yeah I am, I am this I'm part of this I'm worth something this is who I am and then start translating um, but yeah yeah so I'm just I think that it's igniting that that heart And when I read your book, I was like, I was like, this is it. This is what we're missing. It's a biophilia. Mm -hmm. So I really hope that everyone who watches this, everyone who listens to this, either listens to it on Audible or buys the book um, or takes one of your
0: classes. People want to find me on the interwebs, they can just uh, Google my name or whatever charleseisenstein.org